OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to uh, Ask an Angel. And today, very excited to have you join us, Cal, because we've been doing lots of other things in the background. So even more exciting to kind of dive in and explore more about yourself and the business Mm -hmm. and things you've been doing. So to start off, uh, the best way is to give us a little bit of background on yourself, kind of where you've come from, uh, where you're at, where you're going, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. All right. That sounds like fun. So uh, I actually started my career more at big companies uh, like Wells Fargo Bank and Visa and Pricewaterhouse. And so did the Fortune 100 executive thing. But midway through my career, I realized I think I would have more fun on the entrepreneurial track. So uh, from that, I went to several real estate tech startups for many, many years and uh, soup to nuts, did all kinds of things when I reinvented myself that I was doing product and then, you know, online marketing and uh, strategy and so forth. And uh, just had a grand old time just uh, being an entrepreneur at at several startups. Uh, And then later in probably about seven years ago, I got involved with an alumnus, uh, alumni um, angel group called Berkeley Angel Network, uh, which is uh, obviously as the name indicates, an angel group for, of, and by UC Berkeley alums, which gave me my first exposure to the other side. And so I've, I've been doing some angel investing through them and, and through other organizations uh, and kind of learned from the ground up how to do, you know, the deal flow vetting, um, doing due diligence, working with the startups to get them ready for uh, pitch events and so forth. And uh, through that, I basically got embedded in sort of the, the angel investing scene in the Bay Area, connected with a group from Sand Hill Angels that started uh, an accelerator in Berkeley called uh, Battery, which now is uh, five years in, uh, 12th cohort, about 150 companies graduated. So I started as a limited partner. And then over time, I became one of the managing partners and then CEO. And then I helped develop the curriculum and the program, which really just gave me a good feel for how do you coach and train startups to succeed uh, and handed off day-to-day operations on that a few years ago. And then switched to another accelerator where we had another analytical framework uh, to assess startups and uh, kind of rambling here. But very quickly, uh, what I'm doing now is a company called Deal Engine, dealengine.ai, which does analytics on startup success. So basically think of it as the TurboTax for startups, where we uh, collect a lot of data, crunch numbers, give quantified feedback back to the startups, as well as generating deal scores and team scores for the benefit of investors. And uh, basically our Northern light is, you know, the, the elephant in the room with VC is, is that overall the industry has something like a 90% portfolio failure rate. So if we can use data science to de-risk startups from the earliest stage and even get the success rate from 10% to 20%, we have a chance to disrupt the industry. So we're in beta now and very excited about uh, working with startups and just using data to help them get better. I love it. And one thing about you that we wouldn't know. Okay, let's see. Uh, Believe it or not, I am also a Sundance nominated filmmaker because I uh, produced a mockumentary short. Again, I couldn't leave my roots of startups. So I did a mockumentary about the worst possible startup in the world 
called icevan.com and uh, made it to a few film festivals, including Sundance, uh, which, uh, God, if, if, if being a filmmaker could be a little bit more lucrative, I might stay in that. But uh, God, I had a lot of fun doing that. It was called icevan.com? Ice van. So think about way back in the day, there was web van. And then we said, uh, what's even worse than, you know, the worst of the worst. So delivering bags of ice guaranteed in, in an hour. We almost did it about cinder blocks, but we basically created ice van for, you know, the, the company that delivers ice. And that was the worst? At least that's the time, the best thing we could have come up with. Uh, this was, uh, you know, some 20 years ago. I bet if we kind of brainstorm now and got really into non-fungible tokens, we can say, like, you know, let's have some NFTs for ice. Yep. And uh, it can probably get exponentially worse with uh, some of the later uh, technologies we have. Well, just pop it in my head because I remember I was going through, uh, I think it was Vietnam. And there's, uh, you know, uh, like a like a tuk-tuk, but it was kind of like a buggy with a bike on the front, but it was carrying a buggy and it was an ice buggy. And they'd go along every morning and everybody would come out at four or five in the morning and grab their big cinder blocks of ice. And they had a little chainsaw and they would just zip through and drop these blocks out in front of all the stores because they had to keep their beer cold. So that, that was how awesome. they would do that. Yeah. So, so this guy would just literally drive around the blocks and just drop off ice and it would go on, I think a couple times during the day and it would just be big cylinder blocks of ice. And then they would sit there with a pick and then they would put their beer on it and everything else. But that's how they delivered it. I don't know what they charged for it, but I remember that specifically because I was taking pictures of it. I thought this was a you know great little business run. And yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, that's awesome. That actually tells me maybe there's even hope still for Ice Van someday. 100%. Yes. <laughs> Especially in these hot climates where they can't, uh, they, the streets are too narrow or they're, they're, and they're really just made for, they're doing this on Young Street where they're turning them into uh, they're reducing it down to one and one lanes for a certain extension. And uh, that way they'll have more sidewalk sales, more people walking on the sidewalks, opening them up. It's not going to be like as much as it should be. I think they should open up all of young street and get rid of cars on the whole street. Uh, but then it kind of breaks traffic going obviously East and West. But in saying that, like, you know, when you're in Barcelona, you've got all of these major streets that are just completely shut down and they're just walkable. Right. And you have that yeah. in a lot of, a lot of um, Portugal, you have them everywhere. Right. And those are yeah. big commerce streets. So you, when you don't have that opportunity, you got to move things around and that's the only way you could get ice around. So I thought it was a pretty cool uh, uh, business model back then. So I, I, yeah, you never know. I mean, there is a market need for just about anything somewhere in the world. Yep. I, I always just say that was that, uh, I was in the Philippines because I have a company there. This was, uh, again, this instance was probably 15 years ago and we were at a golf course and I was meeting with some uh, business executives with my business part at the time. And we went into, um, it was a golf range. So we were having a drink and, and um, just teeing balls off. And it kind of hit me that there is a job in this world for everybody if you're willing to do the job and get paid for it, you can do anything you want. And then it's your decision if you're going to take it to something of a different level. Yes. And I, I learned that there because um, as right or wrong as the environment was, which it bothered me at the time because I didn't really like it, but I was looking at it from the entrepreneurship side, is mm -hmm. that there was a lady that was serving drinks, but then there was also um, a lady that was teeing up the golf balls. 
and they would build them like just by hand. And that's how they did it. And that was their job. And then you paid them at the end of doing that. So they didn't use teas. They used um, this granular soil. They would tee up enough to hold the ball on it. And then you paid that person at the end of the day for all of the balls you teed off and you had to pay a certain amount of money. So there you go. And I thought, well, it's actually pretty clever because they probably thought originally I should charge you for the tees and, or I could use a plastic one or I can create a job and this person will just own this whole front field and make sure everybody's taken care of. There we go. Yeah. Oh. To each his own. And there is a, a you know, just cause it doesn't work in one market doesn't mean that somewhere else in the world, it, it wouldn't thrive just like you saw. Exactly. So, but I love the concept. I want to actually look this up. I'm going to check this out because I'd love to see the Yeah, you'll find, you'll find the video if you just go to icefan.com. Up until recently, it actually, believe it or not, was a post-revenue quasi-profitable company because I just turned it into an Amazon affiliate site. And, uh, you know, it was post-revenue making about 20 bucks a month and, and uh, at least paid for hosting costs. Uh, which, you, you know, better than a lot of startups back in the day. Uh, I think it broke now. So uh, you can still get to the video, but unfortunately I can't monetize you right now. Oh, that's okay. That's still <laughs> awesome though. I love it. I love it. So there's, there's lots of little avenues and things that I want to touch on, but I guess to go back to your, um, your kind of origination on where you've kind of come from, I think a lot of this obviously speaks to where you are today. Uh, but being through that banking sector and, and how you operate and function on that side of it, how much of those elements that you learned really do you feel have fit into what you're doing today from the financials, the marketing, like how you yeah. did things? Do you think it kind of paved the way for where you decided to take that leap of faith? You know what? I think I took a more unusual path than others uh, because I started my career at you know a conservative accounting firm where I was doing litigation consulting and then a very fiscally conservative bank at that time, Wells Fargo Bank. And because I started off in finance and really thinking about building business cases and financial models to you know, justify any initiative. I mean, literally, if, if you wanted a new coffee maker at Wells Fargo, you'd have to write a business case for it. So it kind of established a, a fiscally conservative discipline at my roots, which still, you know, I sometimes had to reconcile with sort of the entrepreneurial side, which I don't think I was ever as quite the taking a blind leap like some founders do that I would still try to apply some sort of fiscal or financial modeling discipline and and just needing a business case for the ventures I pursued, invested in, companies I worked with that I tended to be a little bit more of a pain in the butt, just getting into the numbers which granted, knowing that founders early on will say, well, you know, these numbers are kind of made up anyway. Can we just kind of ignore them? I said, well, yes. When we look back at this in two or three years, you'll probably be completely wrong. But this is still the best financial snapshot of where you're heading. And it should be a good mirror of your staffing plan, your operational plan, your your, um, sales and marketing plan. And let's just see if it makes numerical sense, if there's any credibility. And and so that has actually influenced a lot of the models that we are developing now. It's just, can you talk coherently, even if it's gonna change, you're gonna pivot 12 times between now and and two years from now, just make sure that it's coherent and that it's credible. And I I think that's one of the things that's really influenced me um, up until now and probably going forward as well. And and do you think a lot of that 
uh, like those kind of metrics and doing the case studies and learning or the use cases, learning about uh, how to obviously raise funds to get a new coffee maker. Do you think that that really propelled your um, experimental side of things on how you can help startups really engineer and understand the startup? Because I do think a lot of the time, it's not so much like, hey, go build this model and it's going to be completely wrong and it's going to pivot. It's more of the understanding that you can actually get comfortable and know how to innovate inside of a spreadsheet or inside of this metrics mm -hmm. to come up with, hey, here's where I'm really at. And oh my God, I didn't realize I was really here. When I thought about it, I was doing way better than maybe when I'm putting on paper and geez, I really need to go back and look at this, or I don't even understand how this works and going and getting that help. Do you think that that really, even in today's world where you're helping ex accelerate startups, do you find that pushing them into this modeling and understanding really puts a whole different perspective on their business and the future use case of this that, Hey, you know what? You might look good now, but five years from now, this business isn't really looking very good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're absolutely spot on. So uh, I've had many cases where I've provided guidance and, you know, you just sort of ask the innocent questions like, Oh, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't reconcile with this. And because of that, they've affected, some material pivots and, and change their business model. So I'm here to ask the tough questions. When I ask for some of the data, you kind of have to also delineate between what's a, a proven fact, what's hard data and what the assumptions are. And I personally always go in, well, you know, this industry has a 90% failure rate, you know, elephant in the room. Um, so let's assume this company will fail. So you can almost have a checklist of it will fail if dot, 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 and then just list out all the stuff. It will succeed if dot, dot, dot. And then you kind of need to distinguish between what are some assumptions you need to validate? What are you know, hard data points now that still need to evolve over time? I've seen lots of cases where they're absolutely convinced that, you know, like CAC, customer acquisition cost, is one of the core key metrics. And uh, just because you're crushing it right now and your CAC right now is $10, but you're in some B2B SaaS, you're kind of playing the long game uh, or, or the short game of, of uh, you know, you can get a few leads right now and your CAC is $10. But let's fast forward and think about what your CAC will be when your top of the funnel inbound needs to be a thousand prospects a month and you scale whatever sales and marketing campaigns because you're not maintaining that CAC. So again, like you said, you have to have sort of a forward looking projection of you know, the entire ecosystem, who the competitors are, who are the incumbents that you're dislodging and so forth. So all these layers of complexity and just making them think about that in some ways is intimidating, but it's sort of the, the things that they need to think about for like what the longer journey will look like. And, and what I found from, I watched a lot of your videos that you guys put on in the early years of the battery. And I love them, by the way, they were very good. Thanks. Um, because they're informative. But, and they were challenging and you broke them down into nice little, uh, almost like a Twitter feed, which I think was great because it was just small enough for me to take information in, go back, come in. And, and I, it kind of talks a lot to what we're talking about now too, which is, um, you know, the, the things that can cause pitfalls or the things that you got to look out for. So kind of as you went through the banking sector and you started to build up these metrics, you're also probably working with a lot of early stage companies, even in on the accounting banking side, because that's usually who's going to banks, right? And you're, I, I find that operators in the bank side really just understand business in general a lot easier than the average person. And then when they do get in it, I find that LPs tend to always be, uh, a lot of them are bankers. 
because they see the opportunity. So they want to get into that investment. So it's either you're a banker or you're a lawyer. So lawyers get all the best deals and the bankers just have the risk analysis down so they can jump in and figure it out. So now you went and jumped into the startup world. What were the, some of the learnings you could take? And and I know you got the top 10 list, top 12 lists. You've got these lists. If you were to give like five things that really changed when you went from corporate to startup, what were those big things that you were just like, wow, I had no idea that this was going to happen. And I'm glad I learned this now. And now you're using these for your startups. Yeah. So um, you're saying the biggest thing that kind of blindsided me, I guess. Uh, Yeah. So one of the startups I was involved with, again, sort of um, you saw that I uh, have this passion for independent film and so forth. So getting into that, um, you know, just rubbing elbows with the folks at Sundance and I went to some director conferences and so forth. I mean, I I loved it. So one of the startups that I did after that was actually a a two-sided marketplace which was supposed to represent the solution for distribution for independent filmmakers, for the, the ones that go on the festival circuit. And um, I, I went very deep down um, working with um, the, the filmmakers. They loved me because I had a distribution solution that we were you know, creating theatrical events in public venues that weren't movie theaters, like bars and cafes and restaurants and so forth. And um, so they were the, the inventory supply. They wanted to get paid for it. And so I solved the problem for them, but it was a two-sided marketplace. And so one of the mistakes I made was that then when I focused on the demand side, uh, you know, I'd, I'd worked with schools and I had this great independent film for children. And they said, that's great, but we really want to see Toy Story 4. So it basically was the supply demand disequilibrium. So that got me then going to the, um, to the studios and I, I basically, at that point, it was early enough that uh, digital rights management and digital distribution was early enough that, uh, am I allowed to swear on your show or? Uh... <laughs> uh, you know what, uh, sure. I had someone else do once yeah. and we just kind of kept yeah. going, but you do whatever works, here, here you whatever emphasize works, man, I'm working. <laughs> we can bleep this out later, but basically I got from one of the studios, basically the thank you, fuck you document which was their DRM requirements, which were this thick and something that we just could not bridge the gap between uh, the, the, the studios and then the, the audiences. So uh, I guess what I'm driving at was in recent years, I've gotten very um, academic about the whole value proposition, measurement, problem solution pairing, and just making sure that there's the right product market fit. And that was one of those powerful educational things that even though I, I identified a big value proposition on one side, it was not the monetizing side. And it, it sort of profoundly influenced me in, in terms of planning for making sure that you properly measure value proposition and you do enough work on the customer discovery upfront, just using some of the best practices with you know, Steve Blank's work and, and business model canvas and so forth. So that value proposition, it is pretty significant because, you know, you can't, it can't be off uh, lopsided because someone will always demand more and then it can cause the whole business model to crumble, especially if they're your first customer uh, and mm-hmm. they're trying to help you move forward. Yeah. So when you were kind of, I guess, really diving into this and started to kind of feel, wow, wait a sec, this isn't working out and you had a solution and now you got to bring two sides to it and create this double marketplace. Did they give you the window to do that? Or did it cause a bigger failure and that you weren't able to overcome in the end? 
Yeah, at that time, I, we were, um, you know, the other important lesson is timing. You cannot be too late. You cannot be too soon. You have to be at the right place at the right time. We were too soon. We wanted to do high definition at a time when streaming high definition wasn't possible. We had to do it as progressive downloads and caching them uh, just to present, prevent like, you know, buffering issues and things like that. Plus the studios just were not prepared to release their library into the digital realms. And, um, you know, we were just trying to tap into the, um, the airplane release window. Uh, so again, our timing was wrong, and then we just did not have the, the product market fit at that time. So does this give you, when you're working with your startups and they're coming to you with some innovative new tech, does this kind of give you more of a process for them to, to tackle these problems before they face them so that they're not asking for Toy Story 4 when they're only at <laughs> Toy Story 1? No, exactly. It's um, I'll give you another good example is that uh, when we have them prepare pitch decks, there is, um, you know, the market sizing slide, which we all know, Tam, Sam, Som. And um, Tam and Sam are pretty easy. They're, you know, you look it up and you get some Gartner report or something. And you say, it's, it's a $20 billion market. Done. Check. Um, Sam is something similar, still top down. I push hard with my companies that Som, serviceable, obtainable market, you don't just say, oh yeah, here's Sam and I'm gonna take 10% or 1% of that and check them done. Show me a bottoms up calculation, how you do the numbers and show me that it credibly ties to your sales and marketing plan, that you're, you're able to get into channels and distribution partners and that you have the staffing and the resources to do it. And let's do a real credible, serviceable, obtainable market bottoms up with all those numbers and then you will have something that credibly ties to the other slides in your deck, other materials that you have in your deal room. And you can credibly go also because you have a lot of supporting documentation that holds up everything that you did. Anytime you come and say, ah, I think I'll get 1% of this market, I'm done. It, it basically holds no water for me. I love it. I mean, I was going to say, if I was only recording this, <laughs> since we're recording this, that's a perfect soundbite because... I, I see that so often where uh, the level of detail that doesn't occur in that pitch deck or mostly in the process of sales is that it gets lost. And then when they do get to that slide, it's, well, you know, I'm just looking for 1% to start, but what does that 1% really represent? And I think a lot of the time it's never done as a bottoms up. It's always bottoms down or top down. And that just becomes a buckshot spray and you've never really built any process into it. And I think from some of the things that I've learned that you guys are doing is that, you know, buckshot spray is, is not going to be effective. It's not going to work. So how do you get your teams to look at, and again, this goes into those next investment layers uh, and de-risking your business. How, how do you get the startup to really understand that if you're going to go bottoms up and you're going to be more articulate on how you're going to acquire these, is there a process that you build in? So what does that repeat value look like? Can you build a team that does just keep cycling over repeat, repeat, so that you can keep closing business and then just stacking resources and technology on top of each other. And that's going to just keep closing your business and growing that overall funnel. Is there a process or is there ways that you guys try to structure that to get a startup um, in line? Yeah, no, absolutely. So a, a couple of things that are really important. So, and again, we, we didn't invent these things. These are just sort of 
academic best practices that have been taught that we're, we're leveraging as well. One is the, the concept of the beachhead. What is your initial market entry point that gives you the best chance for success and then the opportunity to move into subsequent segments or, or, or um, other verticals and so forth? And, and it, it is, again, a bottoms-up exercise. The beachhead would just be, you know, I, I consider it like the, the bowling pins. It's the first pin. And then you have a, a bunch of other pins behind it. And maybe all those pins together represent SOM, and you have to check off all of those. So how do you pick your first beachhead? Uh, I, I hate to see the company that says, well, we're SaaS, so we're going to do SME, and we're going to do enterprise, and we're going to do everything in between. And the truth is, you can't do everything because you, you only have so many resources. The sales cycle, if you're enterprise, you know, if you were selling to me back when I was an executive at Wells Fargo Bank, the sales cycle would be potentially... 18 months. It shrank a little bit now because of, you know, certain organizations having interest in working with startups, but it still potentially could be longer than the runway you have for your company before you hit your fume date. On the other side, the SME, it might, you know, be a good viable thing, but your CAC could be so high that your, your, either your annual recurring revenues or your monthly, it might require you, you know, a year and a half to break even on that first acquisition. So, that's where just geeking out on unit economics just to know what makes sense. And can you just get enough traction to show credibility for the model and investors will forgive that? Or are you truly on your own and are you going to have to try to be self-sustaining and viable? So all these things kind of come into play. Uh, but uh, ultimately, just going back to the beachhead thing, it's just making sure that you have all your ducks in a row that you can just hit a market and then move to another sub-market after that and kind of grow into that song as best you can. So I love that. And what I love about it is that the, the bowling pin structure that you're giving is that you have that first pin and then it spreads out. But the thing mm -hmm. is, you've got to knock that first pin down before to lock down the rest. And, and I, I guess if people can put that in their mind, they start to realize, hey, right, if I hit that first pin down, which is my beachhead, then that will open up the room for the next pins to be able to be accessible and then knock them down. What I find is that um, people are trying to line up, you know, first pins, like 20 first pins. And they're like, well, I don't know what my beachhead is. And I'm just going to go after all of these. So yeah. how do you coach a business that has the energy, the drive, the 18 hours a day, seven days a week mentality that you need to work more effectively and just go after that one pin first. Yeah, yeah. How do you change that mindset? Because I think we're all eager, and that's the. I think that's probably the biggest problem versus the best problem is that yeah. how do you get them to focus and say, "Look, this is your first time. I've done this a million times. You really got to try and hone in on that one pin. Trust me, I'll save you a million <laughs> hours, and I'll make your life easier. Just go after that one pin, and then the rest will be under behind it, which means they'll yeah. all fall. How do you want to do that? How do you do that? So. I always say, I mean, first and foremost, the information that is in your prospective customer's head is so much more value, uh, valuable than the information that's in your own head. So you do have to go out and do some field work. And the great thing is by identifying your target customers and first approaching them to say, I'm doing a customer discovery exercise. I'd like to understand how you work, what your needs are, and have a conversation about that. You're not selling, but at the same time, you're kind of selling because you're planting the seed of your product in their heads. And then, but it's still a true market research exercise to just understand how they consume a product, what the incumbent product is, 
what it would take to dislodge the incumbent, which is absolutely critical. Um, you know, beyond the cost of your product standalone, what's the cost of just migrating? Are they gonna have to have a, a team of, you know, a thousand people get trained and then they have to have a big IT program? So you have to kind of think of all these things. And so we have, again, I, I'm originally a geeky spreadsheet guy. We have these worksheets, which we just have a beachhead analysis. And you do a side-by-side -side analysis of different verticals you could go in, different strategies. And we just ask uh, simple questions. You know, does your target in that segment have the money? Do they have the willingness to change? And you can kind of score it and just, you know, it, it doesn't give you a definitive answer, but it gives you some structured way of thinking about competing beachhead strategies and which ones kind of filter to the top. I love that. So... One thing you said, which really stands out in that was that you're having multiple conversations and those conversations aren't to close them today. They're feeding the system to close at a later date, but you're putting mm -hmm. this in their mind. So you're going after this beachhead, you know, you've got pins that are lined up behind each other and you're having conversations with the pins behind them, which could be in different verticals or different areas that you may tend to focus on because you're putting the information in their heads to say, I'm coming back. This is where we are. So there's one thing that I think I, I, I'd love to add in there that I think really will help in that mechanism, which I'm sure is part of your beachhead uh, process, is that as you're feeding the system, what you end up doing is every time you gain a win, that win gets pushed back to the line. So it gets thrown back to all the other pins because mm -hmm. what you're trying to create is this herd mentality of interest and interest yeah. comes from wins that nobody's really jumping on board and saying, Hey, I heard you lost 10 million last week. Where can I sign up? But they're <laughs> certainly on board when you say, I just closed Tim Hortons and uh, you know, you're working with that next coffee maker, a coffee company uh, and you know, they want in. So those little types of wins build bigger wins with the next, uh, the next herd mentality. So you really do have to preface that sales funnel by getting out there and getting the opportunity to make those pitches and filling that information in which eventually you'll continue to fill in. And that's that growing of that pipeline, which is, you know, you went to them a year ago, now it's time to go back, but go back exactly. as it wins. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, I mean, once you get somebody and, and you basically want to basically use that as a case study to say, hey, I got a win here. What were the metrics, metrics of success? So when you're selling something, you have to be able to say what's in it for them. If you pay me, you know, $1,000 a month for the SaaS platform, you will get a 30% boost in employee productivity. You will have a 25% reduction in costs. Whatever their business case is, you actually need to understand that as well and be able to derive those KPIs because that becomes critical for your marketing materials as well. You know, read our white paper, our case study, uh, customer X had a 25% reduction in costs by using our tool. That's much more powerful. Plus you get the testimonials and somebody else saying that you're great is so much more valuable than I saying that I'm great myself because, um, you know, who am I to assess myself? Well, I think you're doing great. So keep it going. <laughs> and outside, you mentioned KPIs. Maybe you can dive in a little bit more on what that KPI structure would look like as a win, not just for the internal of your teams and your business, but what those KPIs will represent to the public when you're sharing those out. What type of things do people want to see so that they can get on board. And you mentioned some testimonials. What other elements really bring this home for customers to start onboarding themselves 
and not even bothering with yeah. you. Yeah. So um, actually, one other thing I'll just share that sort of helps set up this as well as uh, this is part of our, our curriculum as well, is that um, we very much believe in doing pilots with customers. So you basically want to de-risk it for the customer as much as possible. So, but you have to have a predetermined beginning and end. So let's say it's a finite period of time, 30 days, 90 days, whatever. And you need to have a commitment. Well, if I hit these KPIs, what happens? Well, you become a paying customer, you're gonna pay this. And maybe because you're a beta customer, you'll get a 20% discount for the first year, yada, yada, yada. But also that we can use your KPIs to measure the successes. So part of it is just whatever the KPIs for the, the customer is. And, and it always depends. It's usually things like productivity gains, savings, uh, um, uh, cost savings, and, and so forth, um, or better customer acquisition measures like that. So um, I would focus more on our, like the success KPIs for the startups, which at the end of the day, I, again, this is sometimes a gross oversimplification, but I always condense startups to basically every startup out there just sells widgets. And you, you monetize the widget either one time, once a month, once a year, once a quarter, something like that. And there's a certain cash flow stream. Then you have the upfront acquisition costs. You have churn rate. Churn rate is absolutely critical. And basically getting into um, that transaction with one customer to me is like a building block of how you build up your business. And you have to show that, okay, customer X has this kind of profile because I can acquire them. I break even on customer X by the fourth month. It has a lifetime value of Y. And you can show that like how it rolls together if you get a bunch of building blocks to the entire P&L of your company, at least on the margin, from acquiring more customers with that profile. So it, it's a little bit of a simplification because I, I, there are lots of models that don't apply to that. But at the end of the day, Cash is king. Show me how you spend the money and how you recoup the money and show me in a way that you can get up to the profit margin that you need to have a sustainable business because you also have to cover fixed costs and so forth. Show me when you can break even on a per customer basis, um, you know, that lifetime value. And like I said earlier, churn is one that is too often ignored. And I can't tell you how many times I probably guess the first iteration of a financial model that I see from a startup, half the time they have not built in churn. It's just, you will lose customers. You cannot pretend that you'll acquire a customer and keep that customer forever. And as a startup, there's a very good chance that you will have worse than a 25% churn rate annualized. And so if you're not taking that into account and all I have to do is flick one thing into your model and I can completely blow up your model, that means you have to think about it. And so, you can't say, well, I'm only going to have a 2% churn rate because, you know, some of the, you know, Google is going to lose customers today. Believe it or not, somehow Google will lose customers. And you're not better than Google. So take into account how to retain the customers and also just remind founders that it is so much cheaper to retain and do more work on the retention side than on the acquisition side. And those are the little things that, you know, you don't do it once you're once the ball's in motion. Lay that foundation early on at whatever way you can. And that brings in that repetitive, you know, that auto on button that just yeah. keeps repeating right inside. You're building off the same metrics that you close the beachhead with, and then you're mm -hmm. just repeat, 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 using the same yeah. style, maybe tweaking it here and there, but it's just that auto repeat. Exactly.
So now let's take, we've gone through this, you know, data, uh, the bowling pins, getting into the information, uh, mining that information, building KPIs, selling the, selling the product, getting into market, crushing it. Now let's take the first question, what we asked, and let's put the brakes on and say, now everything that you've learned being in startup world for the last 10 years, what would you go back to big business and say, Hey, you're really doing this wrong. Oh, wow. You learned a ton in startup world. And yeah. I think it's a total different understanding than how yeah. big business is doing it. So what advice would you go back to big business and say, Hey, you know what? I learned a lot when I got into the, the startup world, I got punched in the face here by this instance. <laughs> I learned about uh, uh, double marketplace and how to make things roll. Now take the other side and go back. What would you, what would you bring back to big business and do over? So, Actually, some of the very things that I just told you about, like, you know, using tools like the business model canvas and customer discovery and the value proposition canvas, I've actually been retained to do boot camps and workshops for large international corporations that also want to do that internal innovation thing. That uh, it's clear that um, a lot of corporations want to dance in the space. And in some ways, they might set up either an internal innovation group or uh, you know, the entrepreneur program or some other skunk works or what have you. And at the end of the day, I've yet to see where it, it it's, it's blossomed. I've seen a few actually, and we have a couple of case studies where they've uh, like, I think Boeing had like its own special skunk works program for, for jet and so forth. But generally speaking, a lot of the corporations that I, I've come across uh, will give some lip service to it or, and try some things and then at the end of the day, one of the other important ingredients that startups are actually good at is, you know, doing more with very few resources and then being nimble and quick. So uh, when I was at, you know, one of my Fortune 100 jobs, I actually launched a product development process globally for the, for the company. And it was sort of the academic classic six-stage gate development process. Uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, what you were taught in business school. And nowadays, you know, with lean startup and with agile development, you know, as long as they have enough resources, they will still operate circles around you. So that framework, you, you cannot have sort of the disciplined six-stage gate process, which means that it's at least 12 to 18 months to get a product to market. And in spite of that, I mean, historically, the product launch success rates were not any better than the lean ones. The, the better thing about lean is that you can iterate quick and hopefully pivot during the customer discovery a lot. So you still have to have a concentrated area of failure and just do, you know, fail quick and then move on and fail in a way that you don't kill your company. So that's the thing that I would love to impart in companies in, in larger like corporations. And I, I've yet to see firsthand where it actually um, flourished in a way that they absolutely embrace. Because at the end of the day, they still have to interface with other, you know, you know, silos within the company that just inherently bog down the system and slow it down. So uh, I, I would love to see it. I, I still think the best way for corporations to interact, there are still great ways. I mean, they could still sponsor, you know, accelerators. They could do skunk works. They could have a corporate venture capital arm. Uh, so there are lots of ways of dancing around it. Um, I've yet to see like the perfect case study of, of you know, 
innovation moving things quickly when it's you know still deeply embedded within sort of legacy systems. I love it. I hope to be proven wrong. In time, in time. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do love that. And, it, and again, it's a good way to circle back because you've taken different learnings and said, hey, wait, there's something here that you're not doing and I'm learning it. And I think it's, it, it could be setting up an outside infrastructure that lets them run on their own, like a little mini entrepreneurship camp. Or if mm-hmm. it is going to be internal, you really do have to find some real driven um, metric-based team that's going to be winning above what they're normally structured to do in big business because that protocol and process side throws things down because they're always mitigating risk. And I think there was some crazy number, like it's 72% of all internal corporate projects fail. And I think it always falls back to the person driving it because they never get to the end lengths because they don't envision all the moving pieces. They just envision the end goal, try to work their way back and never really figure out how to get there because too many moving pieces again, cause it to break down. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's fascinating. I think there's a ton of learning there. Uh, we're going to kind of keep moving our way through, but the, the yeah. next thing I want to chat with, and, and we're, there's always this one, you know, all the startups, and I think you guys have worked with over a thousand startups now through uh, the accelerator side. So you're probably going to have a, probably a hundred stories about this, uh, but we just need one or one that pops in your mind. And we're kind of looking for that story that really kind of just makes you feel like that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And it could just be uh, anything where, you know, you had a female founder that had to go through these things and then just made an amazing company or didn't, or this guy had to do this. It's kind of that one where you're just sitting there and you're taking the story and you're like, wow, that's incredible. I was like positive, real driven. Can't believe they made that one through. Anything that comes to mind? Let's think. So just um, a go-getter. Um, we do have one company that was in Battery, uh, a real estate tech startup, that um, probably the most driven, well-organized founder, absolutely systematic with engagement, um, communication, and just completely buttoned up that really it's, it's what you want in all founders. Cause I, I've, you know, worked with a lot of founders that aren't particularly communicative or they're communicative until they get your check. And then it's sort of like, Oh, you were in the news. And then you email them and they're like, Hey, how are you doing? But aren't giving updates. So it's, it's that, that first of all, that if you were to email them, they'll get back to you like within 20 minutes, even if it's 11 o'clock at night or something like that. It's just like, they're, they're always on, they're passionate, they're driven, they're, they have the right level of transparency and um, just know how to work the system. And, and so the one founder that I'm thinking of that was so systematic of, uh, in, in communicating, I've actually used as an inspiration for myself as well, because there is something there where, where um, he had um, assistants that um, basically managed uh, LinkedIn and so forth. And um, still, I mean, he didn't farm it out. He's still very personalized and, and communicative, but just made the communication uh, uh, at an, an art form in terms of engagement. I love it. And the, you're bang on that the tough thing about uh, not just being in startup world, but just in general, when you're growing that business, that communication becomes the lacking piece because you're always head down, working hard. And yeah. I think founders forget that they've got investors all throughout the stages and that everybody's looking for information 
And if you don't feed it, then everybody's coming to you, which means you're creating more workflow for yourself. So yeah. the easier way you can be systematic and push that out will save you a lot of effort on this side and allow you to keep moving forward. And even if it is your head down at that point. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. And it's a, a very valuable lesson for startups to pay attention to. Uh, we're going to jump into our rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, all right. First question. Uh, why do you invest in startups? Uh, diversified portfolio, basically, uh, you know, some of the money's in conservative stuff and some's just going for the home runs, but more importantly, I love this space. I, I, I want to be an entrepreneur and, um, inv investing in companies then empowers you to live vicariously through, uh, companies that are doing the kinds of things you want to do. And, you know, sometimes you get to, um, a little bit more hands-on one example um and, and like i said it lets me do things that i'm not qualified to do so another one of my passions beyond filmmaking is actually um spirits so i uh tinkered with some technologies to artificially age spirits and turn a white spirit into a brown spirit like in a week and i did it myself i got like pressure chambers and did a lot of research and there were some out there and uh it looked great it tasted like crap so I basically connected with um, somebody that's sort of on the cutting edge of this uh, called uh, Lost Spirits, and they're uh, going gangbusters. They're opening up this huge facility in Vegas now. And so as soon as I saw what he's doing with his reactors, I, I realized, wow, he's working at a level that I could never dream of doing it. So I, I might as well be uh, along for the ride with him and um, you know, get to see his successes. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of gave away my, actually, I gave away my equipment to a different startup that used it for a different use case. So, uh, you know, it, it's like I said, just having it fingers in a lot of fun pies. I like it. That's awesome. Uh, how did you get started investing in startups? Uh, so, um, actually, it, it predated Berkeley Angel Network. It was basically a um, friend of mine starting a company. And so it was like sort of, hey, you want to? help here and I'm like, okay. And then um, the important thing was the distinction between, uh, for lack of a better term, dumb money, because you know, first efforts were like dumb money versus being exposed to, oh, this is how you do it at an angel group. And there's a screening committee and that's, this is how they review deals. And this is how you do due diligence. And just being on a due diligence team to teach me about best practices, I, I think that was absolutely invaluable. Um, to just make sure that uh, you not only do it for the love, but that you effectively, you know, de-risk it for yourself as you get into it. I love it. And your favorite part of investing? Um, working with entrepreneurs, honestly. Um, it, it's uh, show, sharing some nuggets of wisdom, even if it's my failures, that cause some sort of pivot or course correction that wouldn't have happened if I weren't there. That to me is like one of the most gratifying things. Perfect. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, personally, it might be fewer than like five or six. And then through battery, it would be, um, I guess we do about two cores, so maybe about 30 or so. Well, you're way above average, so it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any verticals you like to focus on? So I've always said I'm, I'm, vertical agnostic because I, I like to go where the opportunity leads me. I mean, the last one I did 
was a life science one, a dental one. And again, it was where I um, have no domain expertise. I, I, I'm not qualified to do life science. I have to rely on people that are smarter than me. So, you know, jokingly, I like to say I like to just invest in pre-unicorns, but, um, you know, I don't expect the unicorn. But I just look for those that are the best upside potential. So I'm not swayed by the flavor du jour, be it, you know, AI or uh, VR, AR, or whatever. It's um, investing in things that have identified a um, product market fit, have some sort of unfair advantage in the marketplace, and then could, could succeed by just, you know, the, the sheer execution. So, and, uh, you know, it could be anything. I like it. I also felt very um, market agnostic. And then after five years, I went and evaluated what I invested in. And I realized that it happened to be just the areas that I did a lot of stuff in. So mm -hmm. as much as I thought I was like, no, oh, man, I'm all over. And then when I looked at it, I'm like, damn it. <laughs> so I, I guess uh, you tend to bend to the things that you really understand because it's faster for you to say, I like that. than it is, yeah. like you said, going into it, maybe you learn more from an angel group. You saw some needs. You're like, I'm into that. So it mm -hmm. kind of uh, progressively, you keep learning, right? Yeah, exactly. So in the due diligence side, is there certain areas that you require in order to make an investment in the due diligence process? If you don't have it, you're out? Generally, um, I personally do not like the, you know, hurry, the clock is ticking. There's a mad feeding frenzy on this one. Uh, come in and we don't really have much in our deal room for due diligence. I, I Like I said, I actually like to look at the numbers, not because they're right. I know they're wrong but it's just that they're credible and cohesively tied together the entire narrative. So I, I've, um, I've passed on companies that I went very far along, but I just did not see the, the, the hockey stick that you know, you're supposed to see. Whatever way you model out the hockey stick, it, it has to, you know, the ingredients to the stew have to corroborate that. And so I ultimately want to make my own conclusion, not be pressured into, uh, you know, Hurry, time's limited. We only we're about to close in a week. I, I just I'm I'm not swayed by that. I love it. I, I, I might miss out on things here or there, but say love you. I, I think there, there no problem in the world has to be solved in 10 seconds. I think you always have some time. And if you can't find the time, then it's not worth the hustle because I think it's the pressure yeah. doesn't create the value. So yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree that. Uh, outside of paperwork and and are there other things, factors you mentioned? obviously the entrepreneur. So is that kind of the, the number one factor that gets you involved? And then that's, that's yeah. it, or there's team yeah. or is there process? So um, overall, one of our other investment philosophies is, you know, generally startups fail, but we also know why they fail. So a lot of the studies have shown that team, to your point, team and product market fit account for 80% of startup failures which is one of the reasons within our deal engine analytical framework, we deconstruct to focus specifically on team, product, market, and money. And, and those four separate drivers are measured and assessed. I'll double click on the team thing because that is absolutely so important. I have worked with um, founders in the past that uh, granted there's something called coachability, which Every founder needs to be coachable. I, you know, even though I've got lots of gray hairs, I'm 
coachable as well. I need to be able to take in feedback from multiple sources. Some of the advisors might contradict each other, but I take it all in and can process it. I have worked with founders that are not coachable and they just argue. And um, I can give stories of, you know, arguing that they're going to defy the laws of advertising physics and achieve a better, you know, cost per action result than some of the best, you know, marketing PhDs out there and somehow perform magic arbitrage on like, you know, Google AdWords and, and things or AdSense and so forth or AdWords. Um, and what happens then is they fail in the portfolio. And then we're like, I was not surprised that that happened because they literally argued with me about things that didn't make sense. So team is an absolute critical one. And so some of the work that we do at Deal Engine is that we do a lot of analysis, not just on, or we try to avoid some of the, the analytical self-fulfilling prophecies that are demographic stuff, because you might get into a cycle where it's like, oh, look, here's, here's some dudes that graduated from Stanford and then got a job at Google. They're the best profile for startup founders. Um, we know that entrepreneurism thrives across the spectrum. And there are other measures, even in psychometric measures, things like emotional intelligence, grit, um, visionary skills, salesmanship. And those are the kinds of things that we actually are systematically measuring now to just make sure that the team itself has the right uh, psychographic profile that aligns with what a, a successful founding team would need to succeed. Awesome. Very well shared. Do you like to lead rounds? Yeah, I am uh, personally a, a follower. Okay. Uh, do you have preferred <laughs> terms? Like pref shares, uh, common shares, you're pretty open. I'm, I'm open to all of the above. Um, I, I tend to sometimes negotiate. I sometimes prefer not just being the passive investor along for the ride that um, I, I do ask, you know, I'd like to be on your board of advisors. I think that's one of the things that, again, data shows companies are more successful and are more likely to succeed if they have more engagement with investors and advisors. So uh, this was uh, from an angel investor return study a few years ago, a multi-year study, thousands of angel investors. If the founding team only engaged an average of twice a year with their advisors and uh, um, investors and advisors, they are three times less likely to succeed than if they engage twice a month. So that engagement actually helps just because it, it provides that diversity in perspective and just learn from our mistakes that we will see things that, um, you know, sometimes that, you know, they're, they're bored with that they might engage with, might not have that same focus. So a good, well-rounded board of advisors is absolutely key. I love it and wholeheartedly, 100% hands down agree with that. It, the numbers sh show it, prove it, but the founders just don't tend to look at that as a opportunity. Just yeah. like they don't tend to look at it that all of these people on a board or investors are actually a gateway into more sales, more opportunities uh, mm -hmm. with the for the business. And, and I think that somewhere that education needs to be ramped up and changed because you brought these people in, figure out how to utilize them. They're key assets and they've got a ton yeah. of experience. Yeah. Well, we totally teach that every, like in our course, once a month, give an update and end it with, here's my ask of you. Here's what I need of you. I need an introduction to somebody in, you know, enterprise SaaS. Just make one introduction this month or give me to, you know, one investor. 
if you don't ask, you're not going to get those resources. And, and, you know, that's what they're there for. They want you to, to succeed. Agreed. Yeah. I've been learning that one. If you don't ask, you can't get it. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to ask than it is to do it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do you take, uh, do you do follow-up investments? Yes. Yeah. Well, it depends. Um, I like them when they're available and if, if it makes sense. Perfect. Awesome. Well, we're going we're gonna to shift a little bit more again, one more shift into the uh, personal side. Uh, okay. Thank you. That was, uh, that was great. Okay. So first personal question, what is your superpower? My superpower? Um, it's probably geeky, um, but the spreadsheet thing is one thing that has not left me. I think it was such a, a, a formative thing that quantifying just about anything is, is my natural thing that if, if there was a task to get into, I would typically still start in a spreadsheet uh, and you know whatever it is. If it's a sales funnel, some sort of waterfall analysis, it's just my impulse is to quantify it. And the other one that, um, I guess you already asked for one, so I'll stop there. No, fire away, <laughs> keep going, this is good. Uh, I've always had this knack for having the ability to see disparate connections and bringing them together. That's, it's, you know, if, if it's somebody to help the company or it's a new market opportunity. So it's, it's that out of the box thinking that uh, I don't know, um, you know, it's helped in, in that I've introduced new random disparate business models to companies and they're like, ah, oh, we didn't think about that, which is it. always fun too. You're, you're all around full fledged problem solver. Uh, I try. I, I, I'm a student of the whole problem solution value prop. So that's, I live and breathe for that. In fact, I, I, I teach a course called what's your problem, which is all about problems. So <laughs> yes, I guess you're spot on. Yeah. I, I think that might fit then. Yeah. I like that. That's awesome. <laughs> you can't get any more lined up than that. I guess, right? <laughs> Much streamlined. Um, okay. So, uh, what's your first, your favorite sports team? Oh, the San Francisco Giants, big baseball fan. All right, all right. I mean, actually, and the Golden State Warriors. I'll, I'll do. I'll cheat. I'll say too. Yeah, that's okay. That's all right. They, they're not a bad team. The uh, the Raptors, I think, would. Um, well, this year they're not so good, but last year they could have done something. Two yeah. years, ago, two years ago. Well, the Raptors, we still have some painful memories from that series. But, yep. uh, I'm yep. getting over it slowly. <laughs> oh, you guys had some amazing games and somehow we pulled it off. So at, at the end, uh, outside of that one injury that happened at the very end, yeah. uh, pretty tight game, man. I'm not even sure how we pulled it off. So either way. No, I, I, I was happy for, for the Raptors uh, and more happy to give it to them than the Cavaliers or, or any LeBron team, but. Uh, very true. So be very true. Uh, okay. Favorite movie and what character would you play in the movie? Wow. My favorite movie, um, probably the one that is probably the best cathartic moment of all time was Shawshank Redemption, uh, which was, you know, the prison movie. Yeah. And can I choose not to be anything in that movie? Because that was like pretty grim movie to like live through. My second favorite would be um, The Matrix, which I think was just brilliant. And I would pick Neo from The Matrix if I could be awesome. the one. I've actually, in all of the interviews I've done, a few people have actually picked Shawshank, like just like that, just like you did. You were just like Shawshank, and I was like, 
I have to go rewatch this movie. I've seen it many of times, but it's been a long time. But I'm going to actually look this up. I'm going to watch it tonight. Watch it. Yeah, it is a great movie. It, it, it takes you to the, the depths of hell and miserableness. Yeah. But then again, if you haven't seen it, I, I don't want to give away the punchline in case people haven't seen it. Yeah. But it is, it, it, it is the kind of movie that just gives you that emotional lift. Uh, and, and just the down and the up are, are just made the experience amazing. It's kind of that the world of going through defeat in the long play, letting everybody feel you've been defeated. Yeah. And then in the end, you actually were planning this and you won the whole time. So yeah. uh, I, I, have you uh, seen the movie Papillon? Yes. Yes. It kind of has that same resemblance, same right? Yeah. You've beat me up. You think you've won, <laughs> but this whole time I've been living in my own head and I've actually left a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I love it. Um, very cool. And of course, Matrix always sick and it's a, uh, and Neo's a great character in that. I haven't started that series over, but I do like to late night go through old series and I just watch them over and over, uh, like meaning find old series that I haven't seen in a long time and watch them. So uh, I finished uh, just recently doing, um, oh my God. Now I'm going to have a brain fired on it. I should have just said it. You know, when you're going to pop in your head and then you forget what it was. There was uh, there's five uh, underworld. Have you underworld. seen underworld? It's the uh, it's, uh, vampires and werewolves. It's called underworld. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, I have to admit, I have not seen those. Oh, they're awesome. I've never been a vampire person. Like I just have not liked vampire series for some reason. This one is really well done. Okay. It's probably one of, uh, one of the better ones I find that have been ever uh, tried to accomplish this. And they use yeah. tech all the way through and the technology just gets better and better from when it started to where it ends. But either way, I went through that one and uh, I just finished it. It's been a few months of trying to get time to watch it. And now I, but again, very well done. All of the, all all of right. the uh, movies, there's four or five of them, uh, but yeah. they've done a pretty good job. So I will uh, tell my wife that this might be a uh, weekend binge watching time. <laughs> well, you got to like them. So you got to like uh, werewolves and wolverines or uh, werewolves and um, vampires, but it is good. Okay. So, good. Duly noted. But Cal, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I learned a lot and like I always do, even though I try to get away from taking notes, I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> I hear great things and I want to write them down so that I can talk about them after, but uh, brilliant. I love what you guys have done. And again, it was great to spend some time and to learn more about how you think, what you've been doing and, and how you've got to where you are today. And the way we like to end the show is we like to leave you the last word. So anything that you want to share to a startup or to investors, uh, I leave it to you, but again, thank you for all your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, JP. My last word is in, in case there are startups that are within earshot of this. Uh, so dealengine.ai is taking applicants into our beta program now, completely free, non-dilutive. And all we do is we help you provide some mentorship, uh, take some data from you and do some analytics. So go to dealengine.ai slash beta and, uh, tell them, uh, Cal sent you through JP's show and, uh, Hopefully we can help you succeed. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks a lot, JP. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks again. You too. Take care. Bye. Oh, that was brilliant. Uh, great job by Cal and shared a lot of great information. I love the uh, bowling pin analogy just by the fact of way you can envision 
rolling those pins. And especially in that sales cycle, the beachhead being that number one pin, hit that down and it knocks the rest. Uh, I think that was uh, just well shared out. And I think startups, investors really need to hone in on that side of things when it comes to your business. How do I set it up so that I can get that first pin lined up so that I can keep auto repeating and hit that button so that it just keeps occurring and occurring uh, to bring that in. Um, I love the Shawshank movie. I am going to spend some time to watch that. And then, of course, I think on the other side where he talked about um, uh, DealEngine.io, I think that that's another great platform that they're putting together. So uh, at the end, build your KPIs, build your funnel, line those pins up, knock them down, and then just keep auto-repeating. Thank you again for all your time, everybody. Like us, share, add us on Facebook, LinkedIn. Looking forward to seeing you guys all soon again. Thank you.